is there scientific evidence behind the daily decisions you make about your health? What role should clinicians, scientists, and institutions play in debunking pseudoscience? Why does misinformation spread like a virus? Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Coot. Today's guest is Timothy Caulfield. He is the best-selling author and Canada Research Chair in Health, Law, and Policy at the University of Alberta. He's also a professor at the Faculty of Law and School of Public Health. He is an interdisciplinary researcher who has published over 350 academic articles on topics ranging from stem cells to the public representations of science and public health policy. He's won numerous academic and writing awards. He's the Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. Timothy contributes frequently to the popular press, and he's the author of two best-selling books, The Cure for Everything, Untangling the Twisted Messages about Health, Fitness, and Happiness, and Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash. His most recent book is called Relax, Damn It, A User's Guide to the Age of Anxiety. I was so excited to meet Timothy because I'm a huge fan on the show and he's so charismatic, engaging, genuine, just seems like a nice guy. And he was like that when I talked with him. So I love when you have this idea of who someone should be just by watching them on TV and they're, they're like that in person. If you want to support the Design Lab podcast, there's three ways to do it. Go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us five stars and leave us a review. Sign up for the newsletter. The link is in the podcast show notes. And tell someone about the podcast. You could share about us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Now here's my conversation with Timothy Caulfield. Timothy Caulfield, welcome to Design Lab. Thanks for having me on. There's so many ways I want to start this interview because I love your book and I loved your TV show and and has got to do some research and preparing for this interview. I was like, wait, he's like a professor of law. He's not a medical doctor. And I was curious to know how you got into this field of debunking pseudoscience and debunking health claims. It is a strange journey, I got to tell you. Yeah. When, when I finished graduate school and I had my first academic position, I kind of thought I'd you know be on that kind of traditional academic path. And you know, I, look, I was always in health policy. That was you know what I wanted to do and what I was passionate about, health and science policy. But you know what? It's all about having great mentors. And mm. I had these amazing mentors, Bartha Maria Knoppers, Justice Ellen Bacard, Gerald Robertson. And they were all about, hey, make this, you know, academic journey, whatever you want it to be. And all of them were really into this interdisciplinary research. Right. Mm. So, you know, almost out of the gate, we're talking like first summer, you know, I'm at the university, I'm doing interdisciplinary research that doesn't really feel like your traditional legal research. And I'm working in these big science teams and we're bringing in sociologists and anthropologists and philosophers and media experts. And, and we're doing these really big creative projects on how science and health is represented in the public sphere. And that's what mm. I've you know, been, I've been passionate about from the beginning. And very early on, I'm going to say late 90s, it be, I became increasingly interested in how pop culture, you know, the role pop culture played yeah. in how we all think about health 
and science. So not just like, you know, the person on the street and not just your friends and uh -huh. your family, but policymakers and clinicians and other scientists, you know, pop culture matters, right? And I became kind of really obsessed about that. And plus, I love pop culture. So it was this really nice fit for me. And we started doing empirical research on this. So we've done a lot of really big empirical studies. And I'm very lucky. Again, I my research team includes people that have the methodological chops to do this because I don't. <laughs> so I always partner with someone who can, you know, really operationalize the vision. I'll put it that way. So that's what kind of brought me into this. And then I increasingly mm. got involved in, you know, working with the media on these topics. And, you know, I love writing for the popular press. And then, you know, mm -hmm. that was a segue into the books and in the TV shows and, and other really fun creative projects. And, and I love the creative side of, of this too. You know, you don't yeah. always think of academic life as being creative. And, and so I wanted to do more and more of that. I'm impressed by the amount of research that goes into your work. It's not fluff research. It's like legit hardcore research. And you personally have actually like testing out the different like wellness and alternate medicine approaches. I like, how do you have time to do that? That's a, it's a <laughs> tremendous amount of work. It has been, I'll say it, it's been a busy time. <laughs> I'll say that. But yeah, I really do try to have what I call like a sort of a portfolio of approaches. How's that? Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. Sounds kind of boring, but I don't mean it to be. What I mean by that is we try to do the rigorous empirical research. So we, you know, doing our own empirical research. Uh -huh on topics like say how the popular press has represented you know vaccines mm -hmm. or i try to do you know be on top of the literature that's out there you know so we do review articles and that can be reflected also in stuff i write for the popular press but i also think it's important to get on the ground and experience it yourself yeah so you know for the show and for my books i'll go to these alternative providers and i've been all over the world i swear to god yeah. i've tried everything everywhere <laughs> and you know it's funny despite the fact i'm often considered a debunker this is true i think with almost without an exception it was a positive experience uh -huh. right so i even went in cynically and yeah. oh this is gonna be so i totally get it you know lots of times it's just an hour to relax or someone's rubbing your feet you know yeah. <laughs> who doesn't like that <laughs> and so i get it i get it i get why people are attracted to these modalities even though the, there's very little evidence to support yeah. them for those listening who haven't watched your show it's called a user's guide to cheating death there are two seasons released in 2017 a little bit hard to find you can't find it on netflix but if you do get to watch it or if you do find a place to watch it highly recommend it. And I remember when I started watching your show, I was, just to be fully honest, a little bit skeptical. I was like, this is going to be, what kind of weird show is this? But I was just <laughs> impressed by the rigor that went into it of looking at these medical claims and seeing whether the evidence supports some of these medical and health claims. Can you talk about the premise of the show, what the show is about? For sure. And we try to do exactly what you just described, right? We wanted to make sure the show was going to be evidence-based, that it always adhered to the science and didn't do that in a sensationalistic manner, right? Yeah. So that was sort of our mandate. And we always came back to that in production meetings and things mm -hmm. like that, you know, how is this episode playing out? But the other thing that we wanted to do, and what I'm really proud about, we wanted to be a little bit empathetic. We didn't yeah. want to, you know, there've been shows out there that have 
done this, but they kind of make fun of people or make fun of the premise. We really wanted to hear from other people. And sometimes it, as you know, in the show, it is funny because sometimes it's just so absurd. You can't help but laugh a little bit, but we did want to be empathetic. And there's some really, I think, touching moments when you're listening to these people that have tried these, these things. And the other thing is, you know, I love, I love cinema. I love great shows. So we wanted it to look beautiful. And I think, I think we did a good job with that too. Yeah. You were sensitive because I was like, because I'm Korean. And then you had the episode where you go to South Korea and Koreans are obsessed with plastic surgery. It's so so (laughs) commonplace, right? Like all my relatives have gotten some sort of cosmetic surgery, minor, usually minor stuff, but we're just so obsessed with it. But you went in there and you were very culturally sensitive and, you know, debunk some of the kind of claims out there. But I learned a lot from watching that episode. I loved that episode. It's one of my favorite ones because, you know, I'll admit that I went in a little bit more negative right, yeah. to that topic. Right. And ready to be kind of all oh, this is a terrible social trend yeah. and I can't believe people do this. But, you know, on the individual level you know, what this means to individuals, I think you have to be more open. Like Mm. this, you know, on a broad cultural, social level, there might be forces that are not constructive, right? Our obsession with aesthetics, with youth, with the commercialization of sexuality, all of those things may not be constructive, for sure. But then when you talk about what it means to the individual, I think you can separate those things. And and do you remember the scene in that episode where we talked to the person who got the butt surgery, the butt lift? Yeah, yeah. Uh And and wasn't she great? Yeah. Like she was, again, this is what she wanted. She was a normal person. She wasn't like, to me, she wasn't this sensationalist person, but she was just a normal person. You could have some empathy for her, even though I would never recommend anything like that. (laughs) You know, and I think it's crazy. But she was great, right? She was like, look, I know that this isn't for everyone. This is right for me. And so I I think it's important. Whenever you're tackling in with these topics, you've got to remember that. Now, you're still... An academic, though, you you teach at a university. And how did you end up like did people at your university think you were crazy for doing a TV show like this is not a usual path for an academic? That's a really, I think, a really important question. And I'll tell you why, because I think had I taken this path even 10 years earlier, I think it would have been more difficult. Right. Mm. I think that when I started doing this work in the 90s, a lot of people thought, oh, Tim, that's fun, you know, and it's something you do off the side of your desk. Yeah. Right. And and some people even thought, you know, it's demeaning and you're you're trivializing academic work and, yeah. and academics shouldn't do that. Yeah. That's changed. You know, I think there's growing mm. recognition how important public engagement is how important it is to translate science in a way that is meaningful, not just to the academic community, but to everyone. And so my institution, which is University of Alberta, Uh has been incredibly supportive. Fantastic. But I, I do think that even those trends that I just talked about, which I think are all positive trends, have been amplified as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. I think even funding agencies now and governments recognize how important it is for academics to be out there, right? Yeah. So there has been this shift. And I think that now universities and institutions welcome this kind of work. Yeah. And you know, I'm going to pick on my fields of, of medicine and public health. We do such a bad job at communicating with the public. Like 
it's reflective, I think, of where we spend our time as, as an academic. I go to academic medical conferences. I speak to people who espouse the same views as me. You know, there's no convincing that needs to happen. There's no storytelling. And like, why are we so bad at it? And we've seen that during the pandemic. I just can't believe how terrible the messaging has been from the public sector side and from academics. Well, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the positive guy here. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I think that the public health community and clinicians and researchers have gotten better. You know, from the beginning of the pandemic until the end of the pandemic, I think the errors have been recognized uh-huh. and they've improved. But holy cow, you're right. You know, I think especially early in the pandemic, we had this dogmatic pronouncements that didn't really respect the scientific uncertainty, mm-hmm. which has now fueled and wep- been weaponized by those spreading misinformation, yeah. right? So that was problematic. And I also I also think exactly as you said, there wasn't that kind of creative component to the messaging. Which, mm. but but it's improved. Like you look yeah. at you look at all the people, the clinicians and researchers and public health experts now that are on TikTok and they like Ottawa Public Health. You know they have this great funny Twitter feed. We have something that's called hashtag Science Up First, which mm. is an initiative to create engaging, digestible, shareable content to fight misinformation. It started in the context of the pandemic, but now we've shifted to everything. You know, we're looking at contraception, for example, Mm. and the misinformation that can surround it. And and we try to use diverse voices and we use art and we use humor and we use great design (laughs) in order to get across our message. And we're on TikTok, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, of course, and it's been hugely successful. But the the reason I'm bringing that up is it involves scientists and clinicians and public Mm. health experts. There's this growing recognition that that kind of initiative is required. Yeah. And it's important to be in these different mediums because you talk about how influential celebrities are in spreading misinformation and pseudoscience. I wanted you to Talk a little bit more about that. How influential are they? They're really influential. <laughs> you, know, you knew I was going to say that. You knew that. Yeah. We were going. Spoiler. They're super influential. <laughs> but so much so you wrote a book on it, on Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But but I do think it's there's a lot of nuance to that, right? Because, you know, yeah. if we went out on the street right now and we ask a thousand people, do you trust, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow or Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers? Uh-huh. You know, people would say, most people would say no. You know, do you think mm. they're experts? No, but but we know we have like empirical evidence that shows that they are influential. And I think, so there's a lot of really interesting things going on there. You know, number mm. one, of course, is just the megaphone, right? Yeah. They have the megaphone. And so they're able to transmit the misinformation. Secondly, they're often playing to people's ideology or values, mm-hmm. right? And that's often why people are attracted to those individuals, yeah. right? why they are, are aware of them. And thirdly, they're often an attractive or impressive anecdote, right? Yeah. You know, so, and we know that anecdotes, stories, narratives, testimonials, we've done research on this ourselves, mm. very persuasive, right? So yeah, they're, maybe they're not a scientific, you know, Tom Brady's not a scientific expert, but yeah. he's 45 years old, his diet must work. No, that's an anecdote. <laughs> that's not <laughs> science. And so I think that's another reason they have, they have so much influence. There was a study that was done at Oxford University 
and it was a relatively small study, but it has, you know, its findings have been largely replicated by other laboratories, but I love it because it really, I think, illustrates what's going on. They looked at hundreds of bits of misinformation in the mm -hmm. context of COVID. They kind of traced the origin story for each one of those bits of misinformation. And they found about 20% of them, which is pretty big hunk in itself, 20% of them had as the origin, a prominent individual, you know, celebrity, sports star, politician. But 69% of what we share on social media, you know, it's us sharing what we heard from the prominent individual. And I think that uh, really highlights, you know, the yeah. role that that celebrities can play. Yeah. How fast is misinformation, especially around health and medicine, spread globally? Again, you know my answer. <laughs> it's fast, <laughs> fast, 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 fast. So there was a, uh, what's almost become like a classic study, even though it's only, you know, was it five or six years old? 2018 study published in Science confirmed this, right? And it was one of the first really, really big social media studies looking at misinformation. What they found is that misinformation, you know, untruths has spread yeah. faster than than the truth. And, and that's almost like a cliche that we've we've known for a long time. But now we have this body of evidence that backs backs that up. And, you know, it spreads faster, it penetrates deeper. And in part, that's because you can make misinformation more interesting, right? Mm. You can make it scarier. Yeah, you can make it ideologically relevant as compared to the truth. So those of us who are trying to fight misinformation, trying to debunk stuff, we have to remember that and we've got to yeah. create content that has that that those same creative elements, yeah, but it does it in a positive manner. I was shocked when I had some public health experts on the podcast, and they were talking about the spread of misinformation in these really remote rural areas of West Africa. Yeah. And they said, well, what's the pathophysiology of that? How did that virus spread there? And they said, well, there's you know, they look at, there's like a social media post maybe on Facebook that's generated by the US, but then gets shared over WhatsApp and everyone uses WhatsApp and even in these rural areas. So they're like literally looking at a post that was generated in the US halfway across the globe. And they're believing that. And I was just, I was shocked, like how fast and aggressive this virus of misinformation goes like it is incredible how were you supposed to combat that it, you know it really is incredible there have been other studies that have shown that cross-cultural element to it right yeah. that this because i think we all now starting to recognize that social media and there, again growing body of evidence on this social media is one of the primary drivers now and there was a study that came out that found that that is true, not just in North America, not just in the OECD countries, but really globally. That's yeah. the reality. Ever the optimist. I'm ever the optimist. <laughs> the good news is there is evidence that fighting misinformation works, right? And I know saying that people are going to go, what are you, crazy, Tim? How can you say that? But, but we do have good evidence that countering misinformation on social media makes a difference, right? Mm -hmm. And one thing to think, what would it be like now if no one was fighting misinformation? It would be yeah. even worse, right? Mm -hmm. So we do have fairly, I think, robust evidence that fighting misinformation in a very particular kind of way does make a difference, right? There's this danger of like, we're just like highlighting that misinformation when we find it. Like if we, if there's a crazy post on Twitter and then we retweet that and say, this is totally false. Is there a danger of doing that? 
That is a great question. <laughs> and I think we need more research on that. It's often called the backfire effect, right? Yeah. And there is evidence, good news, that it's safe to share misinformation when you're debunking it. Now, this is one of those things that, you know, people in my community, we could have a conference on this and we'd all talk <laughs> about it. You know, when's the right time to debunk? I'm of the school and reasonable people can disagree on this. I think I'm of the school that you should debunk it and it's safe to highlight it. And I think that there is a growing body of evidence to back that up. The backfire effect got a lot of attention at, starting around 2010. There were these studies that showed that there was mm. a backfire effect that by when you debunk something, you either amplify it or you cause people to become more entrenched in their views. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people in the media picked up on that. Okay. Uh, and a lot of people said, I'm not going to debunk stuff because I'm afraid I'm just going to make the situation worse. But almost all of the research since then has found either no backfire effect or that it's very context specific. Now, I want to be careful not to overemphasize what the research says yeah. here, but I think most of it says that it's the emphasis should be on debunking and we shouldn't worry so much about the backfire effect. Yeah. Now, I don't remember this misinformation and pseudoscience spreading so rapidly before social media. Like, is it an entirely a social media phenomenon or like, are there other forces at play? Well, there's definitely other forces at play, but I, you know, it's become almost a cliche to say this, you know, social media really has changed the game. It really has changed the game, right? And not just social media, because there are other things like search that are related, you know, related uh -huh. like search engines, like the algorithms that are associated with the social media platforms and with the search engines. So, you know, all of those sort of emerging information technologies, communication tools have changed the way that misinformation spreads. And, and unfortunately, you know, the bug in the system, the incentives in the system kind of encourage the spread of misinformation. So, yeah. you know, we've got to figure out ways that we can counter those forces. I'm curious to know, as in your opinion, you know, if for those of us who are in academics and who are teaching in public health, then do we like need to be on social media? Like, do we, because, you know, sometimes I, I hate it. It's a, it's a lot of work to do, but is there maybe a responsibility to be on those platforms or, or not? So I'm, you can see me hesitating here. <laughs> so I think we need to engage the public and yeah. it's not for everyone, right? Yeah. And not everyone enjoys it. Not everyone thinks it's the best use of their time, but I definitely think that institutions should support their members that want to get out there and do it, you know, because yeah. I think we need more individuals doing it. I think it should be considered an academic output, you know, something mm, that, you know, you yeah. go to your, your faculty evaluation committee yeah. and it's not something you do off the table, off the side of your desk. Yeah. It should be viewed as a, for those who want to do it, a core valuable activity that needs to be rewarded and supported. And look, it's not, that sounds self-serving, <laughs> but I'm old and, you know, <laughs> I can see the exit, right? I'm talking, you know, you got to think about these <laughs> These young, you know, vibrant, diverse voices that are coming up, we've got to support the ones that want to be out there spreading the good yeah. news, right? The good word. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, look, it's not for everyone, but we are seeing more people do it, right? Yeah. We are seeing institutions take this more seriously. So yeah. I think that's great. I want to talk about your new book that just came out. It's under a couple of different titles, but the for the U.S. listening audience, it is Your Day, Your Way, The Fact and Fiction Behind Your Daily Decisions. 
And the Canadian titles is, which I like better, it's Relax, <laughs> Damn It, Healthy and Happy in the Age of Anxiety. I love the way that you designed this book. It's very clever. It's around an entire full day. Can you tell us about the design of the book and what the book is about? So the gimmick is it takes place over a typical day. You know, the decisions that we make throughout a typical day, you know, you from when to wake up, right? To yeah. do you have a coffee, to go into the bathroom. And the idea was to use those decisions that we all make as an opportunity to explore the cultural forces that shape our decisions, right? Yeah. And sometimes they're a little bit nefarious <laughs> and not evidence-based and to make it relatable because this is relevant to all of us, yeah. right? Whether you're talking about parking your car or toilet seat up or toilet seat down, yeah. <laughs> which by the way, got a lot of discussion. <laughs> There's actual science out there often. And in the book, you know, I, I say this up front and I say it at the end, I don't expect or believe people make decisions based on science and are always rational. And we wouldn't want yeah. a world like that yeah. anyway, right? We want people to follow their passions and their intuitions sometimes. But often people think they're making evidence-based yeah, decisions, right? Yeah. And so I try to really take a look at what the evidence actually says. And But more importantly, it's an opportunity to talk about the all those forces that twist the evidence and twist our decision making. Yeah. Do you have a favorite decision making process that you unearth when writing this book? So the email part, which is near the end of the book, I talk about, look, email just destroys my day. I don't know what it does to your day. Oh, it is. <laughs> so. It's so terrible. Yeah. It stresses me out all the time. You know, you can, the emails accumulating as we're speaking yeah. right now. <laughs> What's in our inbox right now? Oh, I'm, I'm checking email right now to, to <laughs> yeah. when, when we're talking. <laughs> of course you are. Yeah. Of course. You are. But it is that chapter for me was because you know I really feel that having the impact. I'm a writer, and you know I'm supposed to have these this space to work creatively, and you know I can always feel it looming, and and it applies not just to email, but to checking Twitter and your DMs and your text messages, and so I found the science around that fascinating yeah and because there's both these myths about the strategies you're supposed to deploy in order to deal with it and then of course is just the fascinating science on the actual adverse impact it does have on our day you know in the book i joke about how if you go to a major city in the united states and you look at a crowd you're probably looking at a crowd of email answers. Yeah. That's what they do. <laughs> you know, probably two thirds of them spend like six hours a day answering emails, right? And so that's, you know, how did we get here? Yeah. And what impacted? So I, I really, I really enjoyed, and I didn't know that much about that science. You know, some mm. of the chapters it's, I've researched and, yeah. and as you know, in the book, I, I tackle some frivolous stuff, but also some more serious stuff yeah. like, you know, should you let your kids walk to school? I found that yeah. really fascinating, all the history and the science around that. Yeah. And yeah, that was that was fascinating because when I was in Singapore, it's just a safe country there that you could literally put your kid in a cab and send them to a school. And they're like, that's like routine practice. And like, we would never do that in the US of putting like- You'd be like, considered irresponsible, yeah, right? Like you literally know, putting like a set- is yeah. gonna show up. Oh, like know? a six-year-old in the cab and send them off. You're like, what? 
But it, it, that fear is not based on empirical evidence, yeah. right? And it's become the norm. When I don't know, I'm not going to presume how old you are. I think you might be, I think you're younger than I am, but in the close Venn diagrams, <laughs> when I grew up, I would walk, you know, I was free range kid, right? I was barely parented. Right? Yeah. You know? Same, and, same with um, me. The reality is there was more crime then. It yeah. was more dangerous then. And somehow, you know, the cultural forces, some of them ideological, et cetera, have created this impression that the white van is going to pull up <laughs> at any moment, right? <laughs> and that has shifted how, you know, whether we let our kids walk to school. And there's all these benefits associated with that, you know, yeah. exercise, you know, this moment for your kid to be reflective, to hang with their friends. And maybe it's just a quiet time for your, in your kid's busy day. We've taken that from our kids. Was there a wellness approach or a health approach that you were initially thought was like pseudoscience and terrible, but then you end up being surprised that the evidence was actually strong for it? Believe it or not, <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, but I'm going to walk that back. I'm going to walk that back a little bit. I think that, you know, things like mindfulness, there's something there. I'll put it that way. You know, yeah. I think there really is, you know, something there. But the problem is it's so hyped and overplayed in the popular press, right? Yeah. And there are a lot of other, you know, examples like that where I think there's real benefit, but it is overplayed because it, you know, the market swoops in yeah. and and there's also something called optimism bias going on there, you know, a white hat bias sometimes it's called. Uh -huh. You know, it it seems like a noble idea, right? And so I think that that also results in a lot of hype but i do think there's something there and sometimes i think i'm too cynical when i you know first arrive at, at that so uh -huh. I, I do my best to to keep an open mind and i also think that earlier in my career in some of my earlier books i was sort of more aggressive about the kind of exercise that's beneficial yeah. right you know i think there is empirical evidence about you know if you're looking for physiological change and you don't have a lot of time these are probably the activities that you're going to get the most benefit from yeah i've sort of you know you know, try to learn and revise your own messaging yeah and i think the important thing is move yeah <laughs> you know, move if you enjoy I, I, dancing I like, yeah you know just do whatever you want move i love that Part. I just read that section and you say the best time of day to exercise is when you want to exercise and there's no science behind like, oh, we got to exercise in the morning or you got to exercise in the afternoon. You like to exercise late at night. And I'm kind of the same way. I exercise when I want to exercise and I'm not regimented about it because I know in my mind, if I have to exercise at eight o'clock every morning, it's going to suck for me. I don't like that sort of routine. And I exercise when I want to exercise. And it, sometimes it's for five minutes. Sometimes it's for two hours. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way. And I'm fortunate because I, I enjoy exercise. Not everyone does. Yeah. Right? I'm fortunate. So you got to find something you love. But I'm the same way. I want to do it when I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, that, that's even since I finished the book, there have been more studies on the timing, right? Yeah. And when's the best time to exercise for, you know, fat loss, or when's the best uh -huh. time to exercise for, you know, to create physiological change, you know, for athletic benefit. And we're all, you know, it's, we're talking about marginal, marginal. Yeah. You're not an Olympic athlete unless you are, in which, which case, <laughs> just that you get the biggest bang out of exercising consistently and just do what you want. Yeah. Yes. Resistance training is important. Yes. Interval training, probably you get more, you know, quick physiological response, but move. Yeah. <laughs>
And yeah, there's so, so much helpful advice because I don't learn this stuff in medical school or residency training, but these are the type of questions patients will ask us. I'm like, I don't know. Like, and it's nice to have some evidence behind these daily decisions that we make for our health. You do such a great job at debunking misinformation. Do you have like a special checklist that you have for debunking misinformation for the listening audience? Like what are what are some like things that you need to do to tease out whether it's causation versus correlation? Well, you just touched on one of them <laughs> right, <laughs> right off the top there. I think one of the a very straightforward, a simple thing that you can do is always ask yourself, what kind of evidence is being used, mm. right? I know that sounds ridiculously obvious and simple, but, you know, studies tell us we rarely do that, you know, yeah. um, always ask yourself, what kind of evidence is this? Is it just an observational study, right? When I wrote the book, only about 17% of articles in the popular press will say whether it's an observational study. So in other words, wow. the researchers haven't designed it in a way that can hint at causation, right? It's mm. just, we're observing this population and this is what we found. And look, observational studies are still real research and they can be valuable. That's how we found cigarettes caused cancer, right? Yeah. And they can point in a direction, but they're not definitive and they shouldn't mm. be represented as definitive. So always ask yourself, is this just an observational study? Is this just an anecdote? Is it just yeah. a small study? Is it just a preprint? And you don't really have to, you know, have to be a methodological expert to do that, right? I think mm. that can be a very straightforward process. Yeah. And to be honest with you, just asking yourself that question is so important. That the process mm. of asking yourself that question yeah. will make you a, more critical in your assessment of, of the popular press. And yeah. that leads me to number two, which is also super straightforward. Just pause, just take a moment, just take a beat. So there's this really interesting research that talks about how you know, the social media is a frantic information space and we respond very quickly to the headline, to the main theme, and we might share it. We might sort of internalize it. If we can just nudge people to pause, even for a moment, it can make a difference. So yeah. work by my colleague, Gordon Pennycook and David Rand at MIT, yeah. they've found that just pausing, taking that beat, which sounds so simple, can make a real difference. Mm. And so I, that's the other thing I often recommend. And, you know, I, I, the list could go on and on. But the other one I would say is uh, two more, if I could. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ask yourself, are they playing to your emotions? Is the headline playing to my emotions? And that may be on either side of the equation. Is it making you mad? Or is it? does it feel like a touchdown for your side? Kate Starbird, she's a great researcher at the University of Washington, says, if this feels like a touchdown for your team, that should be a moment to say, is this true? Because often I think, you know, coffee's good for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's a touchdown for my team. That should be a moment for me to say, okay, what kind of research is this really? You know, does it play to your tendency to be anti-vax? Does it play to your tendency to be skeptical of big pharma? Whatever the touchdown is, that should be a moment to pause and sort of make sure that there's good evidence behind it. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is someone's selling something. Are they yeah. selling a product, an ideology, a brand? All of that should also be reason to be a little bit skeptical. Yeah. I mean, it it's hard. Even for research that is supported by randomized control trials and not observational studies, because science changes and medicine changes. And you know, sometimes I feel there's a hesitation for me to be 
so adamant in my claims because it's like so many things that I have suggested, even as a physician, years later, they're like, oh, well, there's another study that came out that shows you don't need to take that medication for high cholesterol or the guidelines have changed for controlling hypertension. And, you know, that aspirin, ne- you know, aspirin. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I remember when I was a resident, you know, if someone had chest pain, you had a good story for an acute myocardial infarction, we would take you to the cath lab. You know, I would send them to the cath lab and they would get a heart catheterization. And years later, they would go, well, you don't really need it unless you're having you know very specific EKG criteria. And I know maybe five years from now that will change. So it's hard. If it's hard for me as a physician, it must be so hard for the public when the information changes so, so rapidly. It does change. And, and I think that that message needs to get across to the public, right? That yeah. science is not a list of facts that is immutable. Yeah. Science is a process. It's messy. It's hard, right? There's conflicting data. So in all of my work, one thing I always try to emphasize is this idea of the body of evidence. Mm. It's not a really sexy idea, <laughs> you know, because it's not about breakthroughs and yeah. headlines. But especially in something, you know, you know this better than I do, so especially in something as complicated as biomedicine, where there are so many variables that are relevant. So many, yeah. That the body of evidence is what is really important on any given topic. You know, I start one of my classes always by asking my my students, name name 10 genuine medical breakthroughs, right? You know, over the last century. And that sounds, oh, that's going to be easy. And that kind of defined what a medical breakthrough is. But Uh it's hard to to come up with, with 10, right? That aren't an incremental advance, that aren't, you know, talking about making a, you know, you got clean water, you know, vaccines, antibiotics, anesthesia, maybe, you know, the list, it's hard. (laughs) It's hard. But I think that speaks to the, this idea of the body of evidence is what really matters. And Mm. and there's almost always this sort of slow evolution. Then of course you have the translation to the clinic, which also can be complicated and take time. So yeah, that, always remember what does the body of evidence say about a topic and is this headline outside the body of evidence and if so at a minimum let's see how the science evolves yeah it's so hard because the patients and the public they it's clickbait for the headline so when there's a new study that comes out that just dominates it and go hey well this this re- i saw this on CNBC or the New York Times even and then they're like in that body of evidence, most people aren't following. Like, how do we communicate that? It is tough. You know, for my throughout my career, one of the things, you know, one of the areas I do a lot of research that doesn't get as much attention is on on science hype. Right. Yeah. And and so I've worked right from the beginning on a lot of those big science topics. And I've worked with the the researchers, like these interdisciplinary projects. So I've worked on genomics, on stem cells. We have a big project right now on the microbiome. And all of these projects are introduced to the public as revolutionary, right? It's going to transform medicine. All of them, yes. None of them have, right? In three decades. Now, that's not to say I believe in all of those areas. Incredibly exciting. We're learning so much. There have been real advances that patients have benefited from, but none of them have fundamentally transformed healthcare, right? Yeah. Even though they're all sold that way you could add in there nanotechnology and yeah you know on precision medicine on and on there's these they're all valuable so always remember you know that's another thing i always remind people watch for that science hype so it's not yeah. always about hucksters and alternative medicine you know just the way that science itself is incentivized 
can have an impact on how it's represented at the general yeah. public. Yeah. Well, I can ask you a thousand more questions, but you probably have stuff to do on this Friday afternoon. And I, you know, such a huge fan of your, of your writing, of your messaging, of, of your show. Just really honored to have you on the podcast, Timothy. Well, thanks for having me on. It was, it was really, really fun. And, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to this community. Don't forget to check out Timothy Caulfield's book and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram. His handle is at C-A-U-L-F-I-E-L-D-T-I-M. And reach out to me on social media. I can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Twitter and on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover designed by Eden Liu. See you next week.